This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. That's one small step for man, one all right, historically, perhaps the greatest sentence ever uttered. And uh, because it was a monumental occasion, this the landing on the moon 50 years ago tomorrow, and uh, we were all transfixed at that time. I don't know. I was a tot. How about you? Uh, and if you missed it the first time around, uh, you may be somewhat cavalier or casual about all of this, thinking, well, geez, you know, our computers are uh, so good that they can make anything possible. I mean, we're taking forays to the outer reaches of the solar system and beyond. But uh, going back 50 years ago, this was primitive, primitive stuff. And to overcome some of these challenges is, in fact, monumental in scale and scope. Chris Gaynor knows that more than most. He's an Apollo historian and president of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. And he's joined the Oakley Show this afternoon. Chris, how you doing? Great. It's uh, an exciting week. It must be. I mean, as an Apollo historian, I mean, uh, how will you mark the significant date uh, that will live on in notoriety for ages to come and in perpetuity? Uh, I guess it was really one of these watershed moments or a high watermark for humanity. Uh, you doing anything significant tomorrow to celebrate? Well, um, I, uh, I, I live out on the West Coast, and I'm giving a talk out here about the, the moonwalk. I'm going to I've watched it a number of times, and I'm going to give a, a talk about what the, they actually did, you know, including, you know, the flags and the footprints, but also all the science they did there, uh, because it's the first time anybody had walked on another celestial body, and you have to make decisions. What are they going to do, and what are they not going to do? They were, of course, a little worried they didn't want to have them out too long in case... Uh, uh, you know, they got into trouble, so uh, they wanted to bring them back. Chris, when the the lunar landing uh, happened, there was some speculation that they didn't know the depth of the dust. Am I right about this, or is that hearsay? No, that's 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 correct. There was a a, a scientist called Thomas Gold, who was quite an eminent uh, scientist, and he thought the moon was covered with a thick layer of dust and that the spacecraft would sink in it. Um, and uh, now they landed some uh, robotic spacecraft called Surveyors on the moon, and the Russians landed a couple of spacecraft too. So by the time Apollo 11 went there, they were pretty sure it wouldn't sink in the dust. But there was that anxiety for a while. Well, and this was why they chose the Sea of Tranquility specifically, or what was the reason behind the, the Sea of Tranquility being chosen as a landing site? Uh, basically because they thought it was uh, the, the area they chose was very smooth and it would be difficult for them to get into trouble, like running into, uh, you know, craters or mountains or things like that. Uh, as, as it turned out, they did have a bit of a problem, and Armstrong had to take the, the uh, lunar module, you know, a mile or two past where the computer was going to land it so that it wouldn't land in a crater. So uh, 
But the main thing was that it was a smooth area and it was close to the equator, which made it easier for the orbits. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so much is taken for granted today, uh, you know, and 50 years is not uh, the broadest expanse of time. It's, you know, uh, one person's lifetime, if not less. But we've come so far since then, even to the point of being somewhat, uh, again, uh, the word blasé about uh, overcoming certain challenges and computing power and what have you. But that was the principal challenge at the time. I mean, I've heard it said that uh, today's cell phone, you know, like an Apple uh X-10 or whatever, the uh, has more computing power than what they had on the Apollo uh, spaceship. Is that about right? And in the control center. You know, they had, you know, a, a gigantic room full of computers with almost as much room for the cooling system for the computers. And and I think the power in those things doesn't add up to the uh, to the iPhone I'm talking to you on. It's It's just been an amazing change. And Apollo contributed to that because, you know, this is just when the first semiconductors were coming out. And the first semiconductors, the first market for them was intercontinental ballistic missiles. And then the second one was Apollo. So, uh, and, uh, so they made them more powerful, and that kind of led up to the point where we could uh, get first our personal computers and now uh, our, uh, our smartphones. Yeah, and I guess computer chips at the time, were they uh, available at that point or not yet? Well, yeah, that, uh, sorry, that, that's kind of what I mean when I say semiconductors, the, okay. the chips. Right. So the first ones were used for the missiles and then for Apollo, and then then more of a market began to develop, you know, and then in the, in the 80s it really exploded. Well, and that's the thing, you know, a lot of people uh, would lament that we spend billions, if not trillions of dollars on something like landing on the moon, which to, I guess, uh, a lot of minds, you know, really doesn't have any residual benefit, but that would be misguided because, in fact, that's what these types of operations do lend themselves to, all the residual benefits that accrue as a result. That's right. I think that's one of the one of the lesser-known parts of Apollo was was the uh, uh, the whole computing thing. Like to get to get the uh, computing hardware and software ready for Apollo, that could have held it up. Uh, and then, uh, but but the uh, uses they developed for it, you know, has really benefited us, and of course has revolutionized our lives. You know, 50 years ago is kind of outer space, and today it's cyberspace. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, everything is mundane as, you know, tang flavor crystals, you know, for the juice that they drank because, uh, you know, you weren't going to take bottles of juice there. And, uh, and this is what the space program has given us. Some people also submit that uh, the killing of the Avro Aero project here in Canada uh, lent itself immensely as well to NASA. How was that? Well, uh, NASA wound up hiring about 30 of the top people from Avro, uh, a bunch of the top people from NASA flew up to the Avril plant, which is right next to Pearson Airport, today's Pearson Airport, mm. and, and hired these people. And uh, and they made some really big contributions to Apollo. Uh, and uh, there's a little information on that. Uh, Canada Post just put out a couple of Apollo stamps, and it tells a story of, of people named, uh, a couple of people like Jim Chamberlain and Owen Maynard from Avril, who made a huge contribution uh, to uh, to the Apollo moon landing. Well, yeah, just by the same token, I mean, you could say uh, some of the 
whole American space program got kick-started by the help of these former Nazi V-2 rocket engineers like Werner von Braun as well, no? That's right. They, uh, uh, Von Braun and his people basically uh, uh, supervised the building of the Saturn V rocket, which was, you know, ex- one of the most powerful rockets ever built. So they had a big role in it, too. And uh, But the Canadians were kind of the second most famous group uh, that came in to help the Americans. Again, with Chris Gaynor, he's an Apollo historian and president of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. So let me ask you, I mean, they're on the moon. Uh, I was always fascinated, like, how they got back off. And, uh, I mean, I guess because in outer space, I mean, where's the resistance when you fire the rockets? Or does it create, pardon my ignorance of physics in that regard, but, I mean, that would seem like it would be a tricky uh, operation in and of itself coming back, uh, more so than actually landing, wouldn't it? That was a very tense moment because they... Not so much because of the physics involved, but because uh, they tried to have, you know, redundancy, two ways of doing everything. You know, if one thing failed, there was another way to do it. But if that engine, uh, the ascent engine on the lunar module didn't work, it was going to be a, what they call a bad day. You know, and even the, the President Nixon actually had a speech ready in case the astronauts were trapped on the moon. But... Uh, yeah, the, the the physics involved are quite simple. You know, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So it was a vacuum, but it doesn't need anything to push against. So uh, that wasn't the problem. It's just they had they had one engine that absolutely had to work. That's what worried them. And what do we make of the fact that uh, I mean, apart from. Uh you know, planting the flag, I guess uh, Buzz Aldrin, was it? Uh, or maybe it was Neil Armstrong, also hit a golf ball up there. I mean, what was the thinking? Was that, that on? That was actually, there was a guy named Al Shepard who was on a later uh, landing. So uh, Armstrong and Aldrin, I mean, they did a couple of ceremonial things like uh, put up the flag and, and uh, uh, you know, talk to the president and all that. But uh most of the time, they were working on, on science. You know, they left some experiments behind. There's a laser reflector they left behind that's even used to this very day. They, they, uh, they check how far the moon is from the Earth, and they've noticed that it moves out uh, maybe an inch or two every year. Um, so they, and then, of course, they, they collected some samples of the moon, uh, and... Uh, and took some pictures. And what's little, what's not known very much is that they brought back samples of the sun uh, because the, the moon is outside the radiation belts that protect the Earth from solar radiation. And they got sort of a little device that collected solar radiation, the solar wind, and brought that back to Earth. So we actually learned a lot about the sun from Apollo 11. Mm-hmm. And they brought back how many kilograms of moon rock? And, uh, I mean, have we learned much from those samples? Yes. Well, they, they brought back, uh, uh, the figure just slipped my mind, but it was about, it was about 30 pounds with, you know, about, uh, you know, um, uh, around 20 kilograms. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, and the sub, you know, there are five, uh, others, uh, uh, Apollo spacecraft that landed there. So they, they brought back, uh, uh, you know, several hundred pounds of, uh, of samples. 
And they've learned a lot about the history of the moon and, incidentally, about the history of Earth. I think one of the more important things is that they found out that impacts, you know, from meteors and things like that are very important in the history of the moon and of the Earth, too. Um, uh, you know, most of the effects, you know, craters and things like that were kind of wiped out by our atmosphere or the, the oceans and all that. But... Uh, they found that most of the craters on the moon uh, were caused by impacts, not by volcanoes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and this ties into things like uh, the subsequent discovery uh, that, you know, a, a gigantic asteroid hitting the Earth probably caused the, uh, the extinction that included the dinosaurs 64 million years ago. Yeah, in the Yucatan so, Peninsula. Yeah. So last question, do you think it's worthwhile going back to the, the lunar surface, or should we uh, project out further, Mars landing more important than that, or how do you feel? Well, that's a, that's a big, big argument. Um, I'm, and, and I could run, run through that, but I won't. I, I, I think I'm a bit more of a partisan of going back to the moon first and then, uh, and then going on to Mars. And uh, we'll see how that goes. There's now private people like Elon Musk who are talking about doing it. So so it, it may happen, but we'll have to see. Yeah, and maybe even people staking a claim to the lunar surface. Uh, you know, that uh, is all futuristic, but uh, it's 50 years. In hindsight, we look back at a monumental accomplishment, uh, man landing on the moon, the Apollo 11. Chris Gaynor, I appreciate you joining us this afternoon and telling us all about it, uh, or at least as much as uh, we could fulfill. We could probably take another hour or three. Thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. All right. Chris Gaynor again is the president of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.